Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. It's another Pledge Drive special edition of Access Utah Today. My special guest for the hour is former UPR station manager Richard Meng. And we're going to reach into the archives for parts of some of my most memorable interviews. We'll hear from explorer and educator Helen Thayer, uh, her encounter with a polar bear. We'll hear from indomitable Holocaust survivor Eva Kaur. She was uh, one of the twins of uh, Auschwitz. Uh, she survived. And we'll hear from singer-songwriter Rosalie Sorrells. And we invite you to pledge your support to UPR, help uh, continue this kind of programming coming. And you can do that uh, to upr.org, upr.org, or you can call 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Uh, just a quote to begin the program. This is from uh, last week from Julie Simon in Cedar City. She says, I continue to be grateful for your sharp and brave reporting on Access Utah and your commitment to providing accurate and objective news at all levels. Thank you for that, Julie. If you agree, uh, join your support with Julie's, 800-826-1495 or upr.org. So, uh, Richard, it's, uh, it's great to see you back at UPR. It's really good to be back. Uh, it's uh, It's been a while since I've been here, and it's nice. Yeah. I, I tell people that when you retired, when, when did you retire? Uh, almost 12 years ago. 12 years ago. Almost. Has it been 12 years? Yeah, almost. I, uh, I had an overwhelming desire to retire. I thought, Richard's <laughs> retiring. I want to retire. <laughs> but I couldn't. And I didn't, and I'm you know I'm glad for that. I you know, and one of the reasons I get to be here every day and uh, interview very interesting people, as Lee Austin says, it's like continuing education. It's like going back to going back to university. Um, so uh, remind people of your your background. You were in the army, in the military. I was. Um, I graduated from Utah State University. Oh, I've forgotten that. In uh, in broadcast journalism. Um, Right after I graduated, I had the opportunity to serve in the military for three years. Um, that was an interesting experience because after basic training, I went to Washington, D.C. and served in the White House Communications Agency and got a bit of an education there for uh, three years. Came back, found a job here, and uh, was been here ever since. Yeah. Um, I'm grateful. You, I think... All three instances, you hired me here. Work, study, part-time, full-time. So uh, thank you for that. <laughs> and I hope listeners you know, I hope listeners think it's a good idea. Uh, so interesting, uh, I think you screened for talent, quote-unquote, uh, with the, with the work-study. Uh, work-study students would come in. You'd hire them to read the Herald Journal for uh, the Service for the Blind. We did, and uh, did that for a number of years. Very interesting and hopefully worthwhile. And uh, I believe you probably listened to those, and then because I think with me, probably with others, you invited me. Hey, would you like to? Would you like to work as a part-time announcer? Yeah, and uh, the pay wasn't all that great, but it was good experience for people. I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I worked uh, several twenty-four hour shifts. Uh, I would I would put out the word. I was trying to save money for a car. <laughs> I put out the word on holidays. I'll work your shift if you want. And and some holidays, everybody said yes. I'd like you to. So, brought my blankie up and 
and stayed kind of kind of went stir crazy a couple of times. But I did. I was able to purchase my Dodge Diplomat. So that was. Uh, I remember that. Yeah. I remember that car. It was an old white. Car. Old white car. It was yeah. a, a former UHB car. It was a, it was a police car. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, then I, I was working part time here, and I was working part time as a nighttime security guard at a cheese plant. And you pulled me aside and invited me to apply for a full-time position, which has been created. And I applied, and then it was two weeks walking around at night at the cheese plant, <laughs> really hoping I'd get hired, because <laughs> I was kind of tired of uh, graveyard shift. And uh, the good news was you hired me for that for that job. Um, so there's been a lot of changes over. We're celebrating 65 years. It's amazing of uh, of uh, KVSC, right, and then KUSU, and then uh, then UPR. Um, so you were you were program director for a while. I, I started as a program director, and the year that I started was also the year that uh, we became a member of uh, National Public Radio and started broadcasting. All things considered, yeah, all things considered was the first, right? It then was. Morning Edition came along later. Uh, then uh, Jerry Allen retired, and uh, he became station manager. Um, it, any memorable broadcasts or memorable problems? Uh, <laughs> we're looking at the glass that Friend Weller through the glass to Friend Weller. There's a memorable problem, I guess. I, I remember hiding under my desk so that he wouldn't know I was in the office because I just didn't want to put up with him yeah. any longer. He's a good man. We we love him. We love him. We just, have to say that. Put just that really there, yeah. irritating yeah. sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, Richard, as, as you know, I'll make it, I'll make it an awkward transition to the, to the <laughs> pledge drive here. As you know, this is listener supported radio. Why should people give? I, uh, will never forget the telephone number to call to make your pledge. Uh, after all these years of not being here, <laughs> Eight hundred eight two six fourteen ninety five is burned into my brain, but you cannot get the kind of radio anywhere else that you get here. Um, news stories are more than headlines, and it's important to get the details that go along with those news stories. And this is where it happens: uh, tremendous variety of information, and I think that alone is. Uh, worth a financial contribution. 800-826-1495 or upr.org. We keep that momentum going. It's been a wonderful morning, wonderful drive so far. Keep that momentum going. By the way, you can go to upr.org, and we have a, uh, you call it a thermometer, showing our progress. It's a, it's an old-timey on-air light, and so it's going from left to right, and we're, we're moving steadily to the right here. Uh, with the going toward our goal overall of forty five thousand dollars, so twelve years later, you you can still remember that eight hundred number. I will never yeah. forget. <laughs> I will never forget. Eight hundred eight two six one four nine five. Well, let's hear some uh, hear some great radio, the kind of radio that we hope that you're willing to support. Um, this is one of my most memorable interviews. This is uh, from. Let me get my notes. This is from two thousand nine where uh, Helen Thayer was uh, coming to Utah to give some classes. What she does, she has a resource program for children called Adventure Classroom. Uh, she has been there and done that and got the T-shirt with with everything. She once walked 4,000 miles across the Sahara from Morocco to the Nile River. She's kayaked uh, 2,000 miles of the Amazon River. 
She became the first woman to travel alone to any of the world's poles. She skied to the magnetic North Pole without a dog sled, snowmobile, resupply, or support. Um, uh, she has done everything, and I thought, I want to interview her, and I got the chance ahead of her visit. And so here's a portion of that interview. This is her encounter with the, uh, with her polar bear, I believe. This is Helen Thayer. Could you tell us a bit more about that solo uh, trip to the magnetic North Pole? I'm reading from uh, Lisa Schenker's article. She she covered your uh, uh, talk to the children in Salt Lake City. Uh, I'll just quote from her story. Helen Thayer faced three polar bears on the first day of her expedition to the magnetic North Pole. Nine of her fingers numbed from frostbite. A fierce Arctic storm swept away all of her food, save a small bag of walnuts. Well, it was a very tough journey, to say the least, because I was alone on foot down on the ice with the polar bears, um, living basically on their terms, not mine. Um, and no woman had, um, had made this journey before. No woman had even attempted to, be, to walk to this pole solo. And so I really had to call on my own outdoor experience. And it was uh, very difficult because of the pressure ridges, the polar bears, the weather, the broken ice. But um, I knew that if and I had trained for two years for it, especially for this journey, and so I was well prepared and I had planned everything right down to the last detail. And so I felt so well prepared. I, I really knew that in spite of the difficulties, I could make it through, and I did. But there were some really scary moments along the way. Tell us about one or two of those. Well, uh, the first, of course, was when I left, took that first step. When I left base camp, took that first step, I knew that I had not yet met a polar bear in the wild. Now, as part of my planning, I had lived with the Inuit people for some time, the Masters of Arctic Survival. They know all there is to know about polar bears and so forth. But in spite of learning, listening, training, I knew I really had to stand up to that first bear and see if I could do it. Well, the first day there were no bears, I saw lots of tracks. And then, now, at I must explain, too, that I was the only human, but I did have my polar bear dog. I bought a fella I called Charlie from the Inuit. His job was to keep the polar bears out of the village and keep the humans safe, so a perfect companion for me. And I named him Charlie, and off we went. And, of course, he loved those tracks. He put his big black nose down in them and tried to follow them. Well, there was no way I was going to follow a polar bear tracks. I would tell Charlie, I know what's on the other end. No way. And so, but it wasn't until the next day, I was taking my tent down around 7 in the morning to start the next day's journey, and suddenly Charlie, who was tethered to my sled, began to growl. And I looked up, and there was my first bear. And she had two cubs at her side, and she was growling. She was very angry that I was there at all. This was not the Arctic Welcoming Committee at all. And I stood there trying to remember everything that I'd been taught, keep passive eye contact, don't turn your back, they told me, don't take a single step backwards and don't run because I'd never win the race. Well, I was able to stand and remember what I'd been taught and it worked. And of course, Charlie was, um, he went into his defensive mode to defend me and leaping high in the air, snarling and growling. And so the whole thing was working. Charlie was doing his job as I knew he should and I was doing mine as I had been taught. And then about 30 minutes, the, the bear, she turned, took her two cubs away, disappeared into the rough ice. I never saw her again, but now I knew that, although I, I can't tell you how scared I was, I mean, I, my heart was beating so so loudly and so fast, it about leaped out of my chest. But in spite of that extreme fear, I was able to remember what I'd been taught, 
So now, of course, I knew I'd passed that final test and I, now I knew that I could do it. And I knew how scary it was. And I was very afraid through this journey many times because I met seven bears um, individually up close, and, uh, up close and personal, way too personal sometimes. But now I knew I could do it. I was just going to surmise, and you've said it, you, you must have been frightened. You've, you've been taught, you have Charlie, but still, is it going to work? I'm sure that's going through your mind. Well, that's right. You don't know until the final test comes, and this is such extreme fear because I'm well aware that the last sound I could hear in my life would be the crunch of my own skull because that's how polar bears kill their victims. And polar bears do hunt and kill humans sometimes. So I knew I knew of the danger. I, was, I wasn't out there just being totally oblivious and being some dummy. Oh, I think I'll walk to the pole today, and oh, well, the polar bears, they're nice cuddly pets, aren't they? I knew different than that. That's why I had to plan and train so completely. I couldn't leave anything to chance. But now, having passed that final test, and, I, and describe the fear, I don't think there's any way that I can truly ever describe that to anyone. Uh, there's no words to describe the full extent of it. And if I hadn't taken control of myself and basically walked through that door of fear to the other side, I could have panicked and lost control. And, of course, that would have done me in. And a dog like Charlie is, you know, there's a huge difference in size. But uh, a dog like Charlie really can be effective against a polar bear? Oh, definitely. These dogs, they choose themselves, basically. They, the dogs are fed seal meat, frozen seal meat. And the polar bears, of course, this is their food, and they, can't, they smell it from a great distance. They come in and try to take it away from the dogs sometimes. And there's a lot of trouble, a lot of fighting. Some dogs just don't survive. Others do survive. But Charlie, when he would race to a polar bear, he would approach head on until the last minute he would whip his body around to the side and suddenly be at the back of the bear and grab his heel and hang on and if you can just imagine some a very powerful 100 pound animal determined to defend his owner there uh, and hanging on to that Achilles tendon back there you can imagine how that bear must feel what were some of the other barriers uh, that you uh, experienced in, in that trip well, um, at one stage, I was um, engulfed in an enormous storm. The first time I was engulfed in a storm, winds, according to my wind meter, were around 70 miles an hour. And then the ice began to break up all around my tent. And, of course, my worry at that point was, would the ice break beneath my tent and drop Charlie and I and my tent into the ocean? And being alone and in those days, remember this was in 1988, I didn't have a floatable sled or an immersion suit or, or any of the wonderful things that I could have now that simply didn't exist at that time. And so if I'd gone into the water, it would have been very difficult to survive. And I had to sit a day and a half in that tent, hoping that that ice would stay intact beneath my tent floor. And the ice was breaking up. I was actually in the midst of a major ice breakup. And you can be ground into little pieces just like the ice. But the, the ice underneath my tent held fast. And a day and a half later, the winds went down. I was able to step out of my tent. And all around me, the ice was just a mess. Lots of open water. So then I had to take my ski pole, push the little pieces of ice together to make these bridges from one ice pan to another. And very carefully pull my sled across. 
and then carefully pull Charlie's sled across, make another bridge, push the ice together, pile more on top to make it strong enough, and then pull my sled again. And I did this for half a day because I knew if I could go about five miles north, then I would be on thicker ice, according to my charts and so forth. So that's uh, Helen Thayer. You can see why I wanted to talk to her. She's just an amazing. She's done everything. Uh, from New Zealand, you could hear the the, the accent. Uh, as a girl, I believe she knew Sir Edmund Hillary. Really? Um, maybe that's where she got the bug to uh, to explore. And uh, you can, by the way, you can hear that full interview. You go to upr.org, and uh, you can just uh, use our search function for uh, for Helen Thayer. Fascinating interview. We're hearing some memorable interviews, and uh, we're talking with former uh, UPR station manager Richard Meng. Talking to you as well, and uh, hoping that you will join your support with many others who have called at 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or you can go online to upr.org. Let's take a break. When we come back, more conversation with Richard Meng, and we'll hear from indomitable Holocaust survivor Ava Kaur. I think she's into her 80s now. I interviewed her in 2013, and uh, you'll hear she's a feisty lady and uh, an interesting lady, and we'll hear some of her experiences uh, from... Uh, from the Holocaust period. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Devour Utah, a bi-monthly magazine devoted to covering Utah's dining and drink scene with a spotlight on cooking, local happenings, and libations. Available at newsstands or online at devourutah.com. Did you know that libraries in Cache Valley are being transitioned into civic spaces of the future? Researchers have received a grant from the Institute of Museum and Library Services to work with libraries in northern Utah and the students they serve. They will involve students and their families in maker activities, which combine arts and crafts with technology and engineering. Teachers are excited to discover ways to reach more students. Many physics, biology, art, and shop teachers now have their students engaged in these projects. In North Logan, the library is already opening its doors to all kinds of learning activities. Community members are coming to participate in arts, crafts, and computer classes for seniors. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services. Committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians. Located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. It's a Pledge Drive special edition of the program. We're reaching back into the archives. I've selected uh, some of my most memorable interviews. And up next, we'll hear from Holocaust survivor Ava Kaur. Uh, which you, you know, I don't want you to be put off and think, oh, Holocaust, I'm going to tune out right now. It's, it's, uh, Ava Kaur is quite the feisty lady. I think you'll enjoy hearing from her. And later in the program, Lee Austin's interview, a portion of that from singer-songwriter uh, Rosalie Sorrells. We have uh, UPR uh, station manager uh, Richard Meng uh, with us. Richard, um, you were telling me uh, during the break, uh, you were there at the first, the first pledge drive the UPR ever did. That was an amazing thing. We <laughs> we we were hesitant to start doing that, but the support of listeners was becoming more and more critical. And uh, I believe I was the first one to give a a pitch on ah. the air. And I opened the mic and hesitantly said, "We we need your help." <laughs> um, 
it was an interesting, uh, I believe it was 10 days, and uh, we had a lofty goal of $5,000, and we hit that goal and then went over just a little bit, um, and that helped us, as I recall, to purchase a new audio console that we desperately needed. Mm. But it was an amazing uh, experience, and uh, you have some notes there of the first person who called in and made a pledge. Yeah, long-time listeners will be very familiar with Isabel Catana, great lady that lived in the Logan area. Uh, she's uh, now passed on, but uh, this is from, the Katie found this in our uh, scrapbooks, uh, an article from the Deseret News. Deseret News wrote about that pledge drive, 1982. One public radio supporter, Isabel Catana of Logan, was the first listener to call with a pledge, $100. And half an hour later, she showed up at the radio station in her jogging suit to deliver the money. <laughs> That's a wonderful memory. And she never stopped supporting after she, that. She wonderful was supporter. a tremendous supporter of public radio. Won't you join your support with Isabel's, so to speak, and uh, and call in with your pledge of support? Um, I'd very much appreciate it. Your pledge right now is in support of Access Utah, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. A lot of great uh, thank you gifts to choose from. We've got our new mug that's featured Stephen Bevan's watercolor design, winner of the 2018 UPR Art Mug Contest. It's uh, it's based on 65 years. It's a beautiful design. Uh, it's it's a view through a windshield, driving down the road, and then the the sign on the side of the road says 65 years, and the mountains in the background. So that could be yours for a pledge of five dollars a month or sixty dollars a total, whatever the amount. Uh, call now 800-826-1495 or upr.org upr.org. Richard, we were also reminiscing. Maybe let's bring this on air. Uh, in uh, about a half an hour, we'll be joined by our old friend Craig Hislop. And uh, you might, I don't know what listeners, uh, what picture they have of what goes on behind the scenes, but we can assure listeners that uh, some of what goes on behind the scenes is is hijinks, merriment, it, it, uh, not mature. It's, it, it, uh, it's better to stay behind it, it, the scenes. <laughs> stay behind the scenes. So I recall just about every morning, uh, tell us what you did. Uh. <laughs> Craig Hislop worked the mornings, and Craig was easy. One could break him up by just simply looking through the glass at him. Uh, tremendous radio talent, uh, but very, very easy to break up. And uh, I recall uh, him trying to get even one time. And you were the subject of his revenge. He was he was always trying to get me because <clears throat> I was not easy, and he <laughs> was. <laughs> Somehow I had the ability, whatever was going on around me, to to stay to the end, you know, and and then I'd break up or whatever it, what it was. Uh, so uh, at one point he uh, he put his cassette tape in the recorder to, to record off air. He was going to record this for posterity. <laughs> Uh, there's a little step that comes into our control room. He opened the door. He had a he had a whole armful of uh, of tapes, and he pretended to trip, and he actually did trip. He sold it so well, <laughs> clatter, clatter, clatter. Uh, then he writhed on the floor for a while. I honestly thought he was injured, and I thought after this newscast, I better go help him. But before the newscast ended, he he got up, collected his tapes, and left. <laughs> 
I went down to his office after, and then he said, "Yeah, I was trying to get you." And I couldn't it get was you. It, was, uh, it was a delightful moment. Yeah, he, he's he's a lot of fun. We'll, <laughs> we'll enjoy talking to him in the next hour. Um, but uh, it's we've we've had some great people. Uh, Craig Hissop, great as you mentioned, great radio talent, and for a while he was he worked with us. He did. Uh, many others have passed through. Uh, we, uh, of course, remember uh, Lee Austin, who uh, was a tremendous interviewer and uh, had the opportunity to interview a lot of people during his time here. Unfortunately, he got old and retired also. <laughs> I don't understand. Uh, and he's out in Teasdale enjoying life. Yeah. So we, we talked to him on Thursday, and he's, he's having a lot of fun. Uh, Hawk Mendenhall, who's who became, I think, station manager at a prominent station in Texas, uh, yeah. passed through here. You know, yeah. for, for one, we've had a lot of lot of great people uh, come through. Uh, do you remember any big NPR people who've? Well, Bob Edwards uh, was here and uh, visited us. We had a dinner and a few things like that with Bob Edwards of NPR. Uh, there have been a number of, of uh, NPR folks. Um, Dr. Uh, Pastor? Dr. Pastor came. Yeah, he's come a couple times, yeah. Uh, so we've had uh, some great relations with with NPR. Um, before we go to the, to the next interview, I'd like to tell me a little bit more about that very first fun drive. You said you opened the mic, you were the first one, kind of hesitant, I guess because... This wasn't this wasn't common, right? No, there were a few radio stations around the country that had started doing this. Public television had a, a track record and had been doing it, uh, but we were among some of the first to do it. And the first time you opened the mic, I I almost felt apologetic. I was interrupting the the programming, and I I don't remember exactly what I said, but probably something along the lines of "I'm so very sorry <laughs> to do this." <laughs> so uh, thankfully, things have changed. I think people uh, people understand. Listeners understand now that. Uh, we we you know need the support. It's they're a big part of the equation, and we understand now that we can ask. Well, there there's so much technology involved these days, satellites and computers, and that all costs money. And without the listener support, it just would not happen. Uh, so here's well, uh, Richard, you still remember the number? It's tattooed on your brain. It is eight hundred eight two six one four nine five. Eight hundred eight two six one four nine five or upr dot org. Well, we're having fun with Richard Meng, and we are listening to some of my most memorable interviews. Up next is Holocaust survivor Ava Kor. Uh, she's a victim of Dr. Mengele's medical experiments on twins, and so she tells the story of she had a had a twin uh, named Miriam, um, and ended up in uh, they ended up in, in Auschwitz. Um, much later, they they came to the U.S. They raised families, but uh, Ava Kor founded an organization called Candles Holocaust Museum in Indiana. And in 1995, she made headlines for issuing a personal declaration of amnesty to those individuals responsible for the uh, Holocaust. Her act of forgiveness inspired some and angered others. She came to USU um, in uh, 2013, and I had a chance to interview her ahead of that. And uh, you'll you'll hear what a what a great person she is. Uh, here is just the, the first seven or eight minutes of my interview. She begins to tell her story. It was the end of the third day when the train stopped. We asked for water, and the answer came back in German. I was 10 years old. 
and I instantly understood what happened. We have crossed the border into Germany. Our Hungarian guards have been changed to German, and that meant for all of us that the end was near. People in our cattle car were praying and crying, and the train moved on. We were in the cattle car for another eight hours. The train stopped again, and we again asked for water, and this time there was no answer in any language, which I concluded this must be the final stop, and I was right. We heard a lot of Germans yelling orders outside, and then the cattle car doors swung open. A lot of people, thousands of people, poured out onto a little strip of land called the selection platform. My mother grabbed my twin sister and me by the hand. We were her youngest children, and she hoped that as long as she could hold on to us, that somehow she could protect us. Everything was moving very fast. And as I looked around on that confusion, on that selection platform, I was maybe there 10 minutes when I realized that my father and two older sisters disappeared in the crowd. I never, ever saw them again. So holding on to my mother's arm, hand, as a Nazi was running and yelling in German, Twins, twins, we did not volunteer any information. He noticed us because we were dressed alike and we looked very much alike. And he demanded to know from my mother if we were twins. And my mother asked, is that good? And the Nazi nodded, yes. And my mother said, yes. At that moment, another Nazi came, pulled my mother in one direction. We were pulled in the opposite direction. We were crying. She was crying. All I remember was my mother's arm stretched out in despair as she was pulled away. I never got to say goodbye to her, but I did not really realize that this would be the last time that we would see her. And all that took 30 minutes from the time we stepped down from the cattle car and Miriam and I no longer had a family. We were all alone, and all this was done to us for one single reason, that we were born Jewish, and we didn't really understand why that was a crime. There's no way you could understand, right? No. Now, the reason you were pulled out as twins, unfortunately, is is uh, because of Dr. Joseph Mengele, right? And, uh, right, yeah. And, 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 and genetic uh, experiments. Yeah, well, we didn't know anything. We became part of a group of 13 sets of little girls and one mother who, by miracle, was permitted to stay with her daughters. So there were 13 sets of little twin girls. Somewhere else on that selection platform, there were twin boys. But I was only involved and able to cope with my own little problem. We were marched to a huge building. Our clothes were removed. We sat naked for most of the day until late in the afternoon when our processing began. We, the twins, were given short haircuts. The mother's head was shaved. Our dresses were returned with a huge oil-painted red cross on the back, and the mother was given striped prison uniform. So to have our own clothes, and our own hair was a privilege that we were granted. Then they lined us up 
for registration and tattooing. And when my turn came, I decided that I would give them as much trouble as I possibly could. Four people restrained me. Two Nazis and two women prisoners. While they heated a gadget, it looked like a writing pen with a needle at the end, and they heated the needle over the flame of a lamp. When it got hot, they dipped it into ink, and then they burned into my left arm, dot by dot, the capital letter A, dash, 7063. Miriam became capital A dash 7064. Auschwitz was the only Nazi camp that tattooed its inmates. My husband is a survivor of four years in Buchenwald. He does not have a tattoo. Once we were processed, we were marched throughout the camp. We arrived at a barrack, a modular horse barn, no windows. The windows were on the elevated part of the roof. Inside, everything looked filthy and crude. Three-story high bunk beds covered with a thin straw mattress and a dirty blanket. Miriam and I were given a bunk bed on the bottom, and we have not slept or stretched out in five days. So we thought maybe we could sleep a little bit, but human beings cannot function after such a traumatic day. As I was tossing and turning, I noticed something big and dark moving on the floor, and I began counting, one, two, three. By the time I got to five, I jumped up screaming, mice, mice, coming from a small village, a big farm. I have often encountered mice. And I was always scared of them. But a girl from the top bunk bed said, stupid kid, these are not mice, they are rats. And you better get used to them because they are everywhere. And now we couldn't even try to fall asleep. So Miriam and I went to the latrine. As I entered the place, there on the filthy latrine floor, there are the scattered corpses of three children. I have never, ever seen anybody dead before. But to me, the message was clear that that could happen to Miriam and me unless I did something to prevent it. So I made a silent pledge that I will do anything and everything within my power to make sure that Miriam and I shall not end up on that filthy latrine floor From the moment we left the latrine, I did everything instinctively and everything instinctively right. I never let any doubt or fear enter my mind. I uh, never let go of that image of Miriam and me walking out of that camp alive until the day we were liberated. That's Eva Kaur. You can get a sense of what a what a lady she is. Um, and she founded Candles Holocaust Museum and Education Center. That's in Indiana. She came to uh, Utah State University in 2013. I had a chance to interview her ahead of that uh, visit. And uh, you can find that full interview on our website, upr.org. Just use our search function. Eva Kaur, last name spelled K-O-R. By the way, Miriam, her twin sister, got, uh, by by, uh, Eva's account, got the worst of the experiments. 
it was it was discovered um, later in life when Miriam was uh, was having children that uh, Miriam's kidneys had never grown beyond that of a child, so she had she had significant health problems later on in life. Um, yeah, but uh, but these were survivors, and we had a chance to talk with Eva Kor. Uh, Lee Austin uh, expressed this on Thursday when I had him on, uh, Richard, that, um, you know, a job like this, it's almost not work. So you get to you get to talk to incredible people like Eva Kor day in and day out, and uh, hopefully you're enjoying listening to, to these programs. And, uh, and uh, it's programming that uh, needs support. Where else would you be able to hear an interview like that? Uh, it's uh, it's an amazing service that's provided by public radio. We hope that you appreciate it also. We need your help. It's that simple. Your financial support helps this kind of thing be on the air. Here's the way to support it. You can go online to upr.org, upr.org, or you can call 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. And uh, Joan Shefke called in from North Logan and uh, added her support to many others who have called. Thank you, Joan. Appreciate that. One of our thank you gifts, this has been quite popular. You hear John Meyer on the air uh, giving the weather. And who knew that he manufactured hot sauces? (laughs) People have hidden talents. And uh, so he is offering Bear River Bottling's Dr. Scoville's Abanero Peach Hot Sauce, which he described, well, the label. I'll just read the label here, Richard. Congratulations, you've made it to flavor. Who says turning 65 years old is a bad thing? At Utah Public Radio, we're celebrating our birthday by cranking up the volume, ripping off our headphones, and embracing the weather forecast, calling for a 100% chance to cook up a sweet and spicy storm. With a burn that's between frostbite and heat stroke, this sauce isn't overwhelmingly spicy, but use too much and you might need to issue an excessive heat warning. (laughs) <laughs> that's the label. And he made this special for us for our 65th uh, anniversary. That's $8 a month, $96 for the year. Uh, you could get uh, Dr. Scoville's Abanero Peach Hot Sauce. And uh, what a what an opportunity for you. That's fun. That's nice. So the number is 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or upr.org. Let's take a break. When we come back a little more with our uh, former station manager, Richard Meng, and uh, we'll hear uh, a Lee Austin interview. This is uh, part of his interview with Rosalie Sorrells. More following this break. Next time on Philosophy Talk, Adorno and the Culture Industry. Theodore Adorno said that capitalism creates cultural crap. Don't blame them. Blame us. They're just giving us what we want. What they make us want so they can keep the gravy train running. You really think the cultural industry just manipulates us? It sure doesn't enlighten us. Adorno and the Culture Industry. Next time on Philosophy Talk. Join us tomorrow at 4 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. I'm Stephen Dubner on the next Freakonomics Radio. Imagine you're a kid who grows up to become a professional athlete, and now your mom thinks she's entitled to a share of your new riches. She just said I owe a million dollars. You know, because I had you, I raised you. Maybe kids should pay back their parents for raising them. And that's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Join us Thursday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, and it's the pledge drive, and uh, so it's become our custom. We're we're playing the hits. We're uh, we're reaching back in the archives for some of our favorite interviews, giving you segments of those, and uh, coming to you and uh, asking for your support for Access Utah and for Utah Public Radio in general. And uh, we've heard from Holocaust survivor Eva Kor. We've heard from adventurer Helen uh, Thayer. And we're going to hear Lee Austin's interview, a portion of that from, with singer-songwriter Rosalie Sorrells uh, coming up. And we have with us in studio former uh, station manager uh, Richard Meng. You know, I was uh, thinking as we were at break, uh, a couple of other names from the past, great people who have come through here. Uh, Dennis Hall. Ah, uh, yes. Who, uh, Dennis, um, is blind. And and so you might think, well, that's that provides some challenges, but uh, he he does pretty good. Did uh, an excellent job for us. Uh, Dennis Hall started his radio career in Idaho Falls at KID Radio, and uh, he was uh, on the air for a number of years. Uh, we got him, and uh, for. I don't know how many years, but for a long time, Dennis was a great asset to our staff, a great on-air person, and uh, yes, I remember Dennis well. And uh, Dennis did a, did a lot of the training for me. Uh, they, they said, go train this kid, <laughs> and uh, he, boy, Dennis, Dennis knew his stuff. He did. Uh, including, I remember, uh, um, a project that you guys put me on, uh, an organist over at uh, you know the Kent Concert Hall. And uh, so we went over and taped him, and then I think Dennis gave me some pointers on the reel-to-reel tape, splicing it, editing it. Uh, he gave me some training on that. He could splice tape, and he was blind, and he did a better job than most of us yeah. in splicing tape. Yeah. I think really the only thing he couldn't do uh, was, you know, look out the window and tell you what the current <laughs> current weather was. You <laughs> yeah. know, He could give the forecast and everything, but uh, uh, yeah, great guy. Um, the other guy I was remembering is uh, Fran Martin. Who's oh a, my! A community volunteer, jazz lover of jazz. For many years, he provided a jazz program for us. Every week, uh, Fran Martin's old time radio show. He had a tremendous collection of uh, jazz and big band music from the uh, late thirties, forties, early fifties. It was a very, very interesting program. And for many years, he would sign off that uh, he would say something like uh, his his cat Susie was his producer. <laughs> yeah. Then when Susie died, then it was in memory of of, of Susie. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I remember that. And I, I helped uh, helped uh, produce, helped edit some of those uh, programs. And that friend friend is a wonderful guy. An example of uh, you know not only the staff but uh, the community. Uh, oftentimes, you'll have some great talent out there, and they, they want to come and participate. And uh, you, too, can be involved. With your support, we can continue doing things like uh, like those programs. And you can call right now and make a pledge of support, 800-826-1495. And just say, hey, I'd like to help support public radio a little bit. And uh, if you're a potential new member, what would you say to them, Richard? It's, it's a fairly painless process. It's painless. Uh, it's It only takes a couple of minutes. You'll feel better about it, and uh, public radio will sound better because of it. We've got some great volunteers standing by. The number is 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495.
And I, I, I guess it'll probably happen to me. You know, uh, years after I'm retired, I'll probably have that tattooed in my... You, you're saying 12 years after your <laughs> yeah. retirement, uh, you can't get that number out of your head. Which is, that's a good thing. Well, and I hope that you have it in your mind and that you'll pick up the phone and make a call. 800-826-1495. Well, let's, uh, let's hear this interview. This is from, I think, 2003. Uh, Lee Austin had a chance to talk to the wonderful singer-songwriter Rosalie Sorrells. Uh, so here's a portion of that interview. Well, I'm wondering, uh, actually, last time I talked to Utah Phillips, he was lamenting the fact that while there are a lot of great musicians and singer-songwriters out there doing interesting music, there aren't the kind of anthem songs, the songs that everybody knows and everybody sings and creates kind of a, you know, a community. And, and that the, there just aren't those uh, giant figures out there recording those kinds of songs anymore. Well, I think he's mistaken, but but we get to thinking that we're the only people in the world. We have a real uh, problem with that. <laughs> and I, I think there are people in Central and South America who make songs that everybody sings. And I, I think uh, there are cycles of, of things like that. And we're, we're going through one now. We really need a lot of that stuff. I think it will appear. It always does. When you have to have it, it, it appears. And we sure need it. <laughs> I, I sing a lot of different things than he does. I think I, I sing uh, one Jean Ritchie, who is certainly still alive. She's 80. But, but she wrote one that I sing, and everyone always sings it with me. It's called um, The Cool of the Day. Says my Lord, he said unto me, Do you like this my garden so fair? You may live in this garden if you'll keep the grasses green, and I'll return in the cool of the day. And then the chorus says, Now is the cool of the day. Now is the cool of the day. This earth is a garden, it's the garden of my Lord, and he walks in his garden in the cool of the day. And it just goes on through saying, you may live in this garden if you'll keep the waters pure. You may live in this garden if you will feed my sheep. You may live in this garden if you'll keep my people free. And I'll return in the cool of the day. And I don't even have to ask them to sing it with me. They just begin to sing, you know, because I think they they need to feel like the earth might last another year or two. When you say that uh, you know these things go in cycles, and when there's the need that uh, that these songs appear, and that this is one of those times, can you explain that or expand on that? What what about these particular times are there that need need good songs? Well, when I hear people talking about the possibility of having a a limited nuclear war again, I just go completely nuts, you know. I can't believe we have to have that conversation again. Anybody who's thinking knows you can't do that. Talking about dropping a bomb on somebody who has one, for example, just makes me my skin crawl. When you just feel like the earth has a good chance of being blown to smithereens by a bunch of people who can't stop talking long enough to think about anything, you just, you just get the creeps and you think you better 
stop and stand still and, and think about what you have and then sing about it and talk about it. I've got a home out in Utah In the Rockies that I learned to love so well Where the seagulls and the I have to let you go, and I have one final question. Uh, actually, it's a song request. We want to know if you will be doing this uh, at the show, uh, Dancing with Bears. Oh, God, that's the other one I can't get away from. I love Dancing with Bears. Well, waltzing. it's Waltzing with Bears. Waltzing with Bears. Waltzing with Bears, yes. That's, uh, yeah, I'll probably do that if people want to hear it. I'm, I'm very fond of it, and people always sing on that, too. That would be a good hymn. <laughs> it's a much better thing to do, <laughs> waltzing with bears than some of the things people are thinking of now. Some, I think, I think in fact, Bruce told me he thought it was silly, that song, and I said, we need all the silly we can get. Here in my mountains, I am remarkably fortunate. Living is cheap. I have seven acres of room room for dignity and freedom, privacy to cry when I am sad and to dance when I am gay. It all comes in that little brown paper wrapper and it lets me spit in anybody's eye. Rosalie Sorrells will be performing in Logan this Saturday the Eccles Conference Center on the Utah State University campus, the concert rounding out this year's Bridger Folk Music Society concert series. Sorrell's performance starts at 7.30. Tickets are available at the usual outlets and are $10 in advance and for students and $12 at the door. The sweet briar and the with Writing support for Access Utah is provided by Chapter 2 Books at 130 North, 1st East in Logan. I'm Lee Austin. Thanks for listening.
So that's uh, part of uh, Lee Austin's interview with Rosalie Sorrells. I wanted to keep the end credits in there. That's an old underwriter, uh, Chapter 2 Books. Um, so that's part of the mix. There's some great businesses over the years yeah. have helped us out. Um, and uh, if you just barely tuned in, Rosalie Sorrells won't be <laughs> performing on Saturday. That's from 2003. I wanted to give you a taste of Lee's interview with with Rosalie Sorrells. Um, we're talking with former station manager uh, Lee Austin, or, or uh, Richard Meng. Um, so some great interviews over the years. Uh, Lee Austin, and then I have the, the great privilege of doing this. There have been some fascinating people in this studio talking with you and with Lee and with others. And it is amazing the variety and the information that comes out of that. A couple more people have responded to the drive. By the way, you can call 800-826-1495. Support Access Utah and Utah Public Radio. Victoria Grieve from North Logan has called in. Thank you so much, Victoria. And Elizabeth Feminias in Tory has uh, called in, and uh, thank you so much. And uh, she says, Access Utah is to be applauded. Tom Williams is marvelous. And as you read that, I saw the headphones on your head get tighter as your head <laughs> swelled. It certainly did. I'll, uh, I'll have to go home tonight. My wife will, uh, will deflate my head as she, she performs that service. Uh, and thanks to her. Um, so uh, thank you so much to everyone who has called. You can still pledge 800-826-1495 in support of Access Utah. Richard, are you going to stay with us for the next hour? I will. I wouldn't miss it. Thank you so much, and uh, we'll look forward to that. And uh, uh, tomorrow we'll have some more great fun with some uh, some greatest hits, and uh, folklorist Lynn McNeil will join me. Hope you will as well. Thanks for listening to Access Utah Today. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard and streaming online at upr.org.